You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to the Family Feud Podcast. I'm Keely Yor here with Shotgun Spratling. Shotgun. I feel like every time we go to podcasts, there's just more news that is happening, developing. This is the second week in a row that we almost had breaking news in the middle of our podcast, but um, hopefully nothing breaks this week or this episode, but there's a lot of never news know. to get Yeah, we never know. There's a lot of news to get into. First off, how are you doing? How How is your life? I'm doing great. I mean, uh, this is a time of year where it's supposed to be a downtime, where <laughs> There's constantly stuff happening just in January because you have coaches changing, you have players making their announcements whether they're going to enter the NFL draft or you know, return to school, guys that are draft eligible. So you, there's a lot of uh, newsy stuff for, for a period of time when there's not actually any games or practices going on as far as football. Yeah, so uh, especially at USC, I feel like this time of year is always extra newsy. Um, maybe last year wasn't yet. Last year was kind of, uh, abnormal in the sense that it was pretty vanilla. And then this year is back to the normal USC newsy craziness. (laughs) Um, just first off with the news, let's go into players who have made a decision. So entering the draft at this point is Sam Darnold, Ronald Jones, and Deontay Burnett. Returning Cam Smith, uh, USC's leading tackler in 2017. Toa Lobanon, which is big for USC's O-line and offense in general, Port Augustine is returning, Chuma Adoga is returning, and today Iman Marshall said that he is returning, so that's big for the DBs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're getting a lot of pieces back. I mean, there's still one big one out there in Rasheem Green. You know, that's the one we're hoping doesn't break in the middle of the, <laughs> of the podcast uh, this week because last week we had Ronald Jones making his announcement. I mean, I think the, the, the most interesting one uh, is, is maybe Deontay Burnett, is maybe one that people didn't see coming uh, just because – you know, he's a smaller guy, so he's not, you know, the prototypical NFL uh, wideout that you're going to put on the outside and run go routes with and stuff. But I think he, he made the right decision because, you know, with more of a slight body, he's going to take a lot of hits. And, you know, similar to how running backs, you know, they have a certain shelf life because of the hits they take. I think it's similar with slot receivers because, you know, if you're a smaller guy and you take some of those big hits, you know, it, you only can take so many of those before – your body starts breaking down a little bit. So, and I don't think there was much else he could prove at this level. You know, what else is he going to do unless, you know, he were to move outside permanently? And I just don't think that that suits his role. I don't think that's what he's going to do at the next level. So I think he made the right choice and deciding to go into the NFL draft. Ronald Jones, we obviously thought was going to happen. Uh, and we discussed, you know, him and Sam Darnold last week. Sam Darnold is gone now as well. So you lose your top three offensive weapons there, your top quarterback, receiver, and running back. But on the defensive side, it looks like things are coming back you know, pretty strong. you got Cam Smith, the rock in the middle of that defense back. You're getting, uh, you're getting some other pieces, getting Iman Marshall back, and if he's healthy next year, you saw what he could do in those last couple of games. If he, if he is, can stay healthy next year, I think he can really showcase himself. I think it was a smart move for him to come back. I think he has a chance to put a lot of good film on tape next year and kind of prove his worth a little bit more than he was this year where he, you know, he, he struggled early in the season, lost his confidence, looked like a little bit, and then you know, got, got banged up a bit, came back refreshed and, and looked really good. If he can carry that over to the next year, I think he's got an, a great opportunity to shoot himself up the draft boards from where he may be at right now. And then Rasheem Green, we'll see what happens with him. 
Uh, but, but USC getting some pieces back on defense, which is really helpful because they're going to be a little bit younger next year. You know, when you lose Yuchenna Nwosu off the edge, you lose Chris Hawkins in the back end of that. So someone's going to have to step up, but now there's a couple of leaders that are still there to help out those younger guys. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch the the identity of the offensive the offensive side of the ball uh, kind of take shape over the course of uh, spring and fall because you lost your identity. Um, you lose Sam Donald, Ronald Jones, and Deontay Burnett. That is USC's offense or has been. So it's it's really interesting to me to see how that's going to develop. Who kind of shows up as a leader? Um, I think Toll Obendon coming back is big. Uh, just because he has so much experience that he can kind of be that anchor um, in the middle. Um, as we've said before, he probably will shift over to center um, next season, which I think is a good idea for him and his uh, NFL prospects. Um, but I, I'm just really curious to see who will kind of step up as leaders in that regard. I think Michael Pittman might have a shot. He seems like he could be a more vocal guy when given the chance. Um, and, and Tyler Vaughn's kind of seems like that quiet, steady lead-by-action guy. Um, so I'm very curious to see who kind of develops and, and takes on that leadership role on the offense. Yeah, definitely. And I think if Toa Lobanon is to move into center, which, you know, we put, you know, was in the war room today that, you know, one of the reasons or one of the things he was going to consider when thinking about coming back was, you know, the potential to move inside where he could better showcase himself for the next level, because you're not, you know, I think he's six foot two or six, you know, I think he's six foot two. You're not going to see many six foot two tackles in the NFL. So, you know, his NFL prospects are as an interior lineman. So if he moves to center, you know, he can show you know, he's got that versatility. He could be a potential guy that teams look at to play a couple of different positions. So for USC, with Nico Fala graduating, uh, Vianna Talamavail leaving, there's two spots open right there. You know, maybe Andrew Voorhees is kind of locked up one of those guard spots, and maybe that just leaves Tolobandon to move into center. But, you know, he could play either one of those guard or center if you play center, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that makes him become more of a vocal leader. Because mm-hmm. uh, Nico Fala is kind of always, you know, just a quiet guy. I mean, carrying the briefcase in the in the games and stuff. <laughs> you know, he's always kind of that business-like uh, mentality. But, you know, sometimes you need your center to be a vocal guy, and maybe that will help kind of open up Toa Lomadon to being a little bit more of a vocal leader. Uh, because, you know, I talked to him during the season, and he said maybe that's something I need to do, be a little bit more vocal, you know, when they were kind of struggling to find someone to lead on that offense maybe that'll be kind of a, a, an impetus for him to, to take on that role a little bit more. Yeah, and I'm curious because now all his compadres are gone. You know, you ha- you have you lose Damian Mama this season, you lose Vianney Talamavai, you lose Nico Fala. That's his guy. So I think it's going to be interesting um, how he develops in that sense. And, and he, I talked to him before, and he said that he's wanted to play center because he's moved around essentially uh, his whole career for USC. So it would be nice to maybe for him to have one specific spot where he feels comfortable playing. Um, yeah, and he said, he said coming into the season, I asked him and Nico follow both when they were competing for that center spot, you know, which position would you rather play? Uh, and, and both of the guys said that they were wanting to be center. And one of the reasons Lobanon said was because, you know, because of the future, potential future for him in, in football is to be an interior guy rather than being a left tackle. But he said, you know what, I'm going to do whatever the team needs me to. And he did that this year. You got to respect that, uh, a guy going out there and playing, you know, what is probably not his true position as a left tackle. But now maybe he gets that opportunity to move inside. You know, maybe he can improve his draft stocks, and, and maybe that's part, that's probably partially why he came back rather than trying to, to test the waters this year uh, like some of the other guys have. Yeah, and it wasn't even his first time sacrificing to go to left tackle. Remember when Chad Wheeler uh, tore his ACL, then 
Toa volunteered at left tackle, so he's definitely given his his time to USC and sacrificed uh, for the greater good. But uh, that's only that's just changes slash moves for players. There have also been moves for coaches and the coaching staff. Um, it came out yesterday. Dylan McCullough is taking a running backs position with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, you know, he said that uh, Helton and, and Lynn Swan really tried hard to keep him, um, but you, it, he said that the prospect of going to the NFL and playing uh, or coaching with someone he formerly played with um, was something that he just couldn't pass up. So I know a lot of people were mad about this, but it, it's main, mainly the case of him taking a job that he could not pass up. Yeah, I mean, it's like he said, you know, they tried to, to keep him around, but, you know, the opportunity to play with, I think, a former teammate uh, in Eric Bell. Um, Bell- I can't say his name. Bellamy? <laughs> Bellamy? Bellamy? I think so, yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the, the opportunity to play with a former teammate, you know, with Kansas City, you know, Bellamy moving over to the offense coordinator spot, and he kind of filling in that role as a running backs coach, you know, I, I think that was just something, you know, and that's a progression of a coach. He has an opportunity to move up from the college ranks to the NFL ranks, and he gets to do it with someone he knows well. So that's, that's you know, hard to combat against if you're USC. Now, how, who do they replace him with? You know, where do they go looking for another running back coach? I mean, they went across the country and went to Indiana, of all places, to find Elon McCullough. So what do they do this year uh, when they try to fill that role once again? We'll be interesting to see because a lot of the other spots, it looks like it's going to be, you know, kind of guys moving up the ranks at USC rather than USC going out and doing more of a national search for some of these spots. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How are you um, taking them – or the coaching staff moving up, guys. I know that the Parastyle is not, and Twitter is not a big fan of that. Um, I, I, we've kind of already talked about your thoughts on the Facebook Live, but what did you, what, what do you think overall about moving guys up? I think it's something you do at a smaller school, not necessarily a USC. Now, some guys you earn it if you have earned your your keep, uh, you know, and the moves in particular, Kenichi Daisy, that did the same thing, moving him from strength coach to the defensive line coach. Look at how well that's paid off. Yeah. And, you know, that's a guy that you learn. You can tell the knowledge when you're watching film with guys. and You know, you can find out a lot of stuff about guys, even when they're not technically, you know, a paid assistant, whether they're a grad assistant or whatever it may be. I think Kerry Colbert, you know, who may get that 10th, you know, we expect to get that 10th coaching spot. I think he is a, you know, is a solid hire as a wide receiver coach. And he's just a guy that's moving up. Some of the other ones, you know, I just don't know as much about some of these guys, whereas I, you know, I had class actually with Kerry Colbert in grad school. So, you know, I was able to pick his brain a little bit. And, you know, I, I've talked to him on and off um, throughout the years since then. So, you know, he's a guy that I have trust in just from having talked to him. Some of the other ones I don't really know as well. And, you know, the first time you talk to KU after he gets the job, you're like, wow, this guy, you know, this guy is saying the right things and seems like he – is on the right path. Now we'll see how they actually progress, and the uh, the defensive linemen have really progressed in the two years under KU. So it'll be interesting, uh, you know, if if any of these guys, you know, in next year or the year after, we're looking back and like saying, why why was anybody concerned? But then again, if you're not actually going out and doing a search, if you're just immediately looking and saying, yeah, that's our guy, we'll just fill in with this guy. I think that's the issue. I think that's something you do at a Mountain West school or you know, a, a group of five school rather than a power five school is you just immediately tap someone to move up rather than hey, saying, hey, we're going to look around and maybe that, you know, maybe we'll interview some of these guys that are already on staff, but there's no guarantee. Whereas we're not really hearing about a lot of interviews for these positions 
before some people have been hired. Yeah, I completely agree. I think at least give the illusion like you are looking because I don't think it sits well to just promote guys underneath. Um, but speaking of interviewing, there's also other coaches that are, are getting NFL interviews. T. Martin has interviewed twice um, with the Raiders, and now there are reports that Ronnie Bradford has interviewed with the Jets. Um, so it's kind of crazy a little bit. It seems a little uh, a little bit of chaos right now. What do you? I know that the parasol is kind of a little bit in panic mode because Dylan kind of set off this panic of well, what's happening with the coaching staff? What's going to happen next year? What does Lynn Swan think? How are you processing all these the news about surrounding the coaching staff? You know what's interesting is that it's the the order in which these coaches have left. You know Tyson Helton leaving. Was there a lot of, you know, uh, was there a big uproar? Oh, my God, what are we going to do? No. But now Dylan McCullough, who everyone sees as a very good coach, who is a very good coach, and probably one of the prized coaches that USC had on the staff this past season, and people were like, oh, it's, it's all, you know, it's all going to hell now. And, and, you know, but if Ronnie Bradford was the first guy when a lot of people, you know, are not high on Ronnie Bradford on our message boards and whatnot, if he would have been the guy that got, that got hired by, you know, if he got hired by the Jets yesterday rather than Dylan McCullough, I don't think you'd see the same uproar. Now, you know, when you see so many coaches that, that are talking, and that's just part of the coaching profession. You go and you do interviews because you make a connection. You know, you, you find out about someone, and then, hey, you, you go do the interview with someone for a head coaching job. And, for example, T. Martin. T. Martin was never going to get that head coaching job with, uh, with Oakland. But you go put your foot in front of them and say, hey, look, you know, I'm a you know, well-rounded candidate. I can do this. I can do this. And then that's when you get a second opportunity. And they're like, you know, he obviously wasn't going to be our head coach. We already had Gruden kind of lined up. But, you know, we, we probably should get him on staff somewhere because he was just so impressive in that interview or whatever it may be. Uh, you got to get your foot in the door, you know, because if nobody knows you, if nobody, you know, has talked to you, then how are you going to get that next job down the line? It's always good to be, you know, it's kind of interviewing for, for coaching positions is basically the networking that you do in this profession. So, you know, I don't think it's unusual. You know, we haven't heard a ton about interviews in the past, but T. Martin has interviewed for previous jobs. You know, he he uh, interviewed for offense coordinator with LSU previously. I mean, he, he talked with, with Tennessee earlier in this, and we heard about those. But a couple years ago, he's also looked at some positions and, and did not leave USC. There's no, there's no guarantee he's going to leave USC right now. I mean, most things we've heard is that he's pointing that he's going to come back as of now. So – it's just part of the process. And I think people are, are, are hearing a little bit more about it this off season because there's multiple coaches that are, that are being interviewed and they're getting a little tizzy about it just because also it's kind of the combination. It, it's because there's several coaches being uh, kind of courted, but also the fact that, you know, you haven't gone out and, and made some splash hires with the positions. So I, I think you, you kind of have a dual, um, a dual reasoning for why the P is, is flipping out in, in that regard. And, you know, USC can go and make some really good hires and people will forget that they were complaining about the guys that may have been left, that might may have left or, you know, that, that they were worried about would leave. So we'll just, you kind of had to wait and see in this part. And it's just, it's the same every year. This is kind of just the process at the end of the year. There, there are two different, uh, uh, coaching carousels. You have the one where the head coaches get fired in college and kind of the turnover and you see, you know, a, a whole slew of, of, of coaches kind of move around. And then 
you see once the NFL jobs come open and there's the Black Monday of the NFL, you see those coaching positions come open and you see people start to move around a little bit more there too. And I think that's just all you're seeing right now is you're starting to see those NFL jobs are open and you know they're looking for candidates as well, USC being a high-profile place. And obviously, you, you know, that these USC assistants are, are being buoyed, I guess, by our USC football coverage because, you know, all these GMs and these NFL uh, owners have seen so much about these, these USC assistants. So it's all us, really, I think, is what helping these guys out. Oh, no, yeah. I'm just kidding, but... So I, mean, I mean, they've also seen your pictures, too, am I right? <laughs> yeah, apparently the Chiefs have seen my pictures and decided just to crop them down and uh, remove the watermarks. <laughs> uh, so that was a, a fun ordeal today, but we gotta, we got to take care of a little bit with, with the Chiefs. They apologize. Oh, that's good. Good job, Chiefs. I guess not. Yeah, I, still, I mean, I, I still told them if, if they wanted, they could send me a couple of seven and three eights fitted hats. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's in your bio, right? Your Twitter bio? Exactly. exactly. Okay. If anybody just wants to send me a hat, you know, seven and three eights, make sure it's cool or else it just gets thrown in the discard pile. <laughs> well, okay. But back to track on what we were talking about. What I was going to say is last episode, we talked about the uncertainty, just meaning players-wise, going forward next year. Is there more uncertainty at this point, not knowing who exactly is going to be on the staff at this point? I mean, granted, this is typical January-type stuff, but, I mean, there's a lot of... I feel like there's a lot of turnover or uncertainty right now. Well, the thing is, to kind of... to calm that down is you have to go out and and fill these positions that you're looking at rather than taking a long time. You don't want the women's basketball coaching search like they had where it took, like, 40, 50 days for them to, to come up with a head coach and everybody's kind of left in limbo with the rest of the program because you can't really do anything. Yeah. I mean, if you're a player, you kind of, you know, in, in this situation, if it's your position coach, you kind of just continue working out and trying to improve yourself, but, you know, you don't have that guidance necessarily that you would have otherwise. So, you know, I think you have to, to be proactive, go looking and find the right candidates and not take forever to do it and not just look behind – the desk that you already have in the office. Go look across the country uh, behind some other desks to find some people. And we, we talked about players. I mean, you ha- there's a little bit of a deadline for, you know, the guys making decisions about NFL or not. That's January 15th. But there's also a number of players that might be considering transferring as well. So we're going to see some – we're still going to see more movement, you know, in the next month, a month and a half before we know what the full roster is for USC going into spring. Because even after signing day – you know, USC, the coaching staff will try to get all those decisions decided before signing day so they know how many slots they have. But even after that, you still could have guys transfer leading into spring practice or even a couple weeks into spring practice. They don't feel like they're at, in the right spot where they want to be. Still going to be a lot more movement in this offseason. And that's just how it is almost every year. You're, you're going to see some guys come, some guys go. Um, for USC, you just hope it's not any big names, and on the coaching side, you hope that you can fill it with some quality guys um, that you know maybe people don't know about, and you go out there and find some, some gems like they have the last couple of, of years. Yeah, but do you think Helton will actually do that? He seems kind of stubborn in, in his coaching search ways a little bit, I, in the sense that uh, Dylan McCullough was kind of an aberration versus the norm. Yeah, and, and part of that may be actually that there's no real – running backs assistant there's no grad assistant or staff person that's kind of assigned whereas Kerry Colbert's been working with the wide receivers uh you know Brian Ellis was working with the quarterbacks 
you know, you have other guys that have been helping out at these certain positions. So it makes it easier to say, well, this guy has been doing a good job with this group already. We'll just promote him. And, and partially it might just be that Clay Helton is that loyal to his coaches that he says, Hey, these guys, you know, they're not getting paid a lot as the support staff slash, you know, uh, assistance to the assistants. And, and so I'm going to give them an opportunity and that's not a terrible route. You know, that's, you know, being loyal, that just, that gives you an opportunity to go out and get other coaches because they know that, Hey, if I come to USC and I'm with Clay Helton, he's going to be loyal to me, even if I'm struggling a little bit or whatever. So you may be able to get a, a bigger and higher than you may have expected in that regard. So it goes kind of both ways in, uh, when it comes to how, how loyal you are to the guys that are on your staff already and, and how much you go out and try to find some guys that, that other people don't know about. But a lot of people are saying that this next year kind of will be a deciding year for Helton. How much is that Helton putting too much faith in almost being loyal to a fault? Isn't that because he kind of could be going down with the ship he's creating right now. How important is it for him to get people um, experience who he knows he can trust to do well? And, and that is completely part of it. I mean, that is a big question going into this season is that is he going to make the changes that may need to be made rather than being loyal, or is he going to lose such a great opportunity as the head coach of USC? Not saying that necessarily next year is a make-or-break year. He could have a 9-4 and four season or a 10-3 and three season. It wouldn't necessarily be make-or-break. Um, but if you have a 7-6 and six or an 8-5, and five, there's going to be a lot of, uh, lot of calls for his head. So – can you make changes even if it's, you know, even if his brother was still on the staff or even if it's Neil Calloway, who he's, has basically been in the family for 30 years or whatever it may be, you know, it, can he make the cha- necessary changes to improve the team or do you stick with your, with the guys, you know, and, and trust them to get it done. And if they don't, and it may cost you. So, you know, you have to weigh those things as a, you know, kind of a CEO of the program, uh, how, who can I trust and who's going to get us to the promised land? Uh, so it, it's loyalty versus results are, are a, a tough, tough margin to, to have to, you know, kind of teeter on, you know, decide which side of the, the coin you're going you're gonna to fall on, which side is worth a little bit more in your mind. And that's what I'm really curious about because what we've seen from Helton is he leans more loyalty than he does um, – maybe the smarter decision, the better decision. So I'm very curious to see how he handles this offseason because you and I have both said it. This is going to be a real test for him as a head coach. Are you going to make those tough decisions? And I, honestly, I don't know if he will. So I'm very, hey, and, very curious. But but the quote-unquote smarter decision versus the loyal one isn't always the right decision. I mean, you, you look at LSU with that Orgeron. You know, they just fired their offense coordinator who they went out and stole from a different school. They posted him from somewhere else. Now they did the same thing with their defense coordinator. He's been really good. Dave Aranda from Wisconsin and a lot of people, you know, USC people wanted, mm-hmm. the, you know, the the administration to look at him, the, the athletic department to look at him when there was an opening. But Clay Helton stuck with someone that he knew, Clancy Pendergast, and went all in on, on Clancy Pendergast, and they got him back in. And the USC defense has been pretty darn good okay, the last but, two but, seasons. But Clancy, you already had a, a trial run. He was there the year, two years prior to that. You know, he he already had a season. That's not really a a, a, a um what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a guess. Like that he knew to a certain extent what Clancy would bring and that he was successful at USC. 
was everyone happy when Clancy Pendergrass was hired? I don't think so. You know, I think people wanted USC to go for a, a Dave Aranda or some of the other guys that were yeah. out there. Yeah. Uh, but Clay Helton said, this is my guy. This is who I'm going with. And, you know, you guys can get over it. And the USC didn't do it. So, you know, that's that's the other side of it. Sometimes, you know, you trust the guy. You know what they do. You know their strengths and weaknesses already. You know how to supplement it with someone else. Whereas you have to go out and find someone new. It doesn't always work out. Like, you know, the offense coordinator candidate at, at LSU. Yeah. It'll be interesting for sure. There's never a dull moment covering USC, or if you're listening to this, being a USC fan. I, it's pretty, it's always eventful. <laughs> There's always something going on. Always something. La- last offseason was a bit of an aberration, but then you got the, the Bormeister stuff, so then you, you felt right. like it was back to normal USC. There was something off the field going on when there shouldn't be anything going on. Yep. Uh, USC. Always interesting. Shall we get into the stock up portion of our segment of our podcast? Sure. Okay. Our season stock up. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I should have said this from the beginning. We are doing a season stock up, stock down, a season keep it, change it, which is pretty exciting. Um, and being the studious person that I am, uh, <laughs> I made First these, time ever. No, shush. I made these <laughs> notes before all of this madness happened. So my first stock up point is actually a sad point, if you will. So my first stock up is Dylan McCullough and the running back position. <laughs> and I guess it's true. His his stock was up in the sense that he is now going to the NFL. That's how much his stock was up. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, two years he goes from Indiana to USC to the Kansas City Chiefs who have, you know, a dynamic running back in Kareem Hunt. So, you know, a lot, nice little uh, two-year move for, for Dylan McCullough. Yeah, no, for sure. I definitely um, – that's a, that's a high rise for McCullough. But he definitely he brought a new running style to USC. His favorite line was running through trash. You know, yards after contact was his thing. According, I, I had a little cheat sheet because he tweeted out, like, postseason uh, stats. Uh, and according to him, he said there was a 1,568 total yards after contact, meaning that um, the running backs averaged 3.69 yards per carry after contact, which was huge. Um, I probably will mention this a lot in this podcast just because it's my life right now, but I'm going through a lot of highlights because I'm making a lot of highlight mashups. Um, and I'm also looking at 2015, 2016 and especially for Rojo and Rojo is just a, a more physical runner, especially once that first contact is made, um, in his junior season versus when you look at his tape from freshman year and sophomore year. So you can definitely tell that he brought, um, a different style of running for the, the running backs and elevated that position. Um, but his, his notes are a little off because he said that all four, um, top running backs, meaning, uh, Rojo, Stephen Carr, uh, Vivai, and Augusta Ware all averaged over five yards per carry. But when I looked it up, only Rojo and Stephen Carr did, but still, that's still a good accomplishment. Um, both Rojo and Stephen Carr averaged five yards per carry. Um, and then there were 229 knockdowns as a position group. So pretty good for the running backs. Yeah, and I, I definitely I had, you know, I, I was going to put Dylan McCall on there. Figured you would do it, so I'm just putting <laughs> Ronald Jones on there. Just the development of this game, adding the extra weight. You know, he said he had 10, 12 pounds, uh, the extra muscle, but also the mindset for him. You know, he he, he was pretty much a one-cut guy, and he needed to get upfield, and, you know, he, he needed to, you know, break free and try to make somebody miss in the secondary. This year he was running hard, running between the tackles. He did a little bit of everything, you know, extending his game to where he was able to catch some passes. I mean, the swing pass against Arizona, you know, the, the wheel route that he ran, perfect throw from Darnold on the run, just tremendous. 
And then you, you look back at the Texas game right before halftime, that the, the Hail Mary check down to Ronald Jones gets a big block for, uh, from Stephen Mitchell, but takes it to the house. And that, you know, that was huge because that game ends up being decided by a field goal at the end. You know, he was huge all season and just the mindset that he took and, and Dylan McCullough talked about, or, you know, when, when uh, he tweeted out actually his text conversation with Ronald Jones, when he first took the job and when Ronald uh, declared for the draft and said, Hey, this is, this is what, where he came from basically and said, Hey, I'm going to challenge you. I think you're a guy that can be in the league. You got to get to work, though, and that is exactly what Ronald Jones did. And I, I thought he was tremendous this season for USC. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm putting out pretty soon career highlights for Ronald Jones, and it's just crazy what he did at USC. You you watch it and you're like, wow, that like it's obvious, but he was such a great running back for USC and kind of overrated. Uh, I mean, not overrated, underrated. Because <laughs> um, I I don't think he got as much hype as he should have. Is that do you agree with that, Chaka? I agree. I mean, he, he makes some electric runs. Uh, you know, he's not Reggie Bush. No one is. But since Reggie Bush is gone, I think, you know, Ronald Jones has definitely had the most electric runs of anybody, which is probably why your highlight tape is going to be so long is because a lot of those touchdown runs and stuff are, you know, 40, 50, 70, 80 yard runs. Uh, so those take a little bit longer on the highlight reel to, to finish off. Maybe you, you might have to put some of those in fast forward when he breaks away. I See, the thing is, okay, so right now I'm averaging like 10 minutes. I feel like people are going to want to watch 10 minutes of Ronald Jones. It's, it's exciting stuff. I don't know. Send me your I feedback. Mean, you can be mesmerized for 10 minutes about Ronald Jones. He was really good. He was very good. Um, next up on Stock Up, I have Kenichi Desi in the def- defensive line. Um, we already mentioned before, we just think he um, is doing a great job at that uh, position. Uh, he, he At the end of the season, USC led the nation or tied for first in sacks. They had 46 sacks on the season, um, which is a definite improvement because last year they had only 26 sacks. So they added 20 more onto those. Um, 66 PBUs. Uh, and then two... C- okay, this is another fun fact from me going through uh, highlights. Two games this season, the USC D-line had three straight sacks in a row. Two different times in the Texas game and the ASU game. How crazy is that? Uh, there are some special guys, obviously, in that unit with Lieutenant Wilson, Rasheem Green, and Porter Gustin when he's healthy, mm-hmm. uh, if you include him in that defensive line. But, yeah, I, I think that group was fantastic. I had him actually – I was going to move that to keep it, mm-hmm. and I'll get to it a little bit later. But I, I've got my defensive line carry over there. But also, along with Kinesiu Daisy, give some credit to Johnny Nance and work with those yes. outside linebackers yes. as well. You know, I, you know the, the fact that those two guys working together, the pass breakups are, are one of the things that stands out to me. I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned the sacks and proving that by 20, but 66 passes broken up is pretty incredible because USC, you know, that, that's that many extra throws that your your DBs don't have to guard. Yep. You know, it's a, it's a pass that's knocked down that they, that they don't have to make a play on. You don't get a flag for holding. You don't get, a, you know, a P.I., all the things that could happen in a play or a catch and a first down, you know, that just never has a chance to go there if you swat the ball down at the line of scrimmage. And I thought they were fantastic at that this year. I thought that was one of the, the biggest improvements and areas of improvements I thought USC made was the fact that they were able to swat so many passes down the line of scrimmage. Yeah, that was something when KU became coach, the first thing I noticed difference in that line is that they always had their hands up. No matter what, they were trying to get a hand up, hand on the ball, anything. And uh, even before the year before KU became coach, the D line had 41 PBUs, and then last year they had around 60, and then this year they have 66. So that's definitely something that KU has brought to the D line that has been very successful. 
And it's also film study, too. They mm-hmm. study the quarterbacks, where those release points are, to know where to put their hands. I thought that I, I talked with KU after one game, and you know, he was t- I was talking kind of about this subject, and he was talking to me about the film study they do to, to try to figure out where you know where that ball is going to come out to be able to get a hand on it. And I was kind of fascinated because that's something you don't really think of with a defense lineman. Are you studying the, the quarterback's release point, his arm angle? Where is that ball going to come out to try to make a play on yeah, I mean, if you remember in the Cal game, that was a big uh, part of the Cal game. And I talked to Yuchina Nuoso after that game, and he said they, they studied the trajectory of his his throw, and they noticed that he threw, Ross Bowers threw low. And so he was like, that was an extra point, uh, extra motivation for us to try and get our hands up more. So like you said, they studied that to a, to a science, and it's, it's pretty impressive. I concur. You, it's your turn for stock up, shotgun. Oh, stock up. So <laughs> defense seniors. You know, this kind of ties in as well right there with, with Uchenna Nwosu. I thought he was absolutely incredible. You know, when he was healthy, he was just an absolute terror on the, uh, offenses. He was a game changer for USC. And then he got injured. He played through the injury. He was still good. He wasn't great like he was. He was All-American, you know, status. He was All-World status those first couple of games before he got, you know, he banged up his knee and stuff. He was absolutely incredible just to see the growth from that kid as a senior at Narbonne High School to his senior season at USC is pretty pretty incredible. And give a lot of credit to the guys around him. Giant Anson, I know, had a really uh, tight relationship with Uchenna Nwosu. Uh, and, and also KU, you know, work, those guys working with Uchenna. Uh, I thought he was fantastic. Also, Chris Hawkins. Uh, you, yeah. know, you look at him from his freshman year where he had to be moved from cornerback because he was grabbing too much. He was holding. And, you know, he couldn't keep up with receivers the way he needed to. Uh, so they moved him to safety and to see where he had progressed in, in his career. I think that's one of the most fun things about covering college sports is seeing the progression, the maturation of these guys, mm-hmm. you know, as they move from, you know, 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds getting on campus, you know, wide-eyed and everything else to turning into young men at 22, 23 years old and how much their games can progress in that, that four- or five-year span. So those two guys in particular I thought were really good. Josh Fatu is another guy who, you know, he was a last-minute ad for USC, you know, on signing day. They basically called him up before, like, hey, don't sign your letter yet. <laughs> okay. And, okay, we're going to check about, see about this. Okay, we want you. It's USC. I, I don't even know if he actually had visited USC. I don't know how in-depth that re- recruitment was, but it was really last-minute. So they basically threw a bone out there. It's like, hey, you want to come? Yes, I do. And he developed, you know, last year he was a part-time contributor behind Stevie Tuikolavatu. This year he became the guy in the middle of the line. I thought he was really good too. You know, three seniors that really stepped their games up this year. Yeah, and you talked about the physical development um, in regards to Chin and Nuosu and Chris Hawkins. Not only that, but the, the maturity in the mental aspect. Those are two guys who became captains, um, represented their team, and had to be – faces to the media, which is a hard thing to do, especially after tough losses. And that's something that Chris Hawkins was very good at his entire time at USC. Um, So that's really cool to see them um, become mature faces of the team as well. Definitely. What else you got on stock? I have Mr. TV, Tyler Vons. He became USC's second leading receiver. Um, Definitely established himself in that Wazoo game, but cough, cough, he definitely should have been starting from the beginning. I still don't know why he did. I mean, obviously, probably seniority, but I'm very curious to see if Tyler Vaughn's had that chemistry more established 
going into the Wazoo game with Sam Darnold, maybe that game is different. Or maybe if Pac-12 refs just don't call a... Don't call it um, offensive pass interference. Yeah, maybe that, maybe the long. game is different. Um, he had 57 receptions for 809 yards and five touchdowns. Um, I just think his his future is bright. I know Ryan Abraham will be very proud of Tyler Vaughn's. Um, so I'm curious. I'm very curious to see uh, what he does next season. Now that he has this year under his belt. Yeah, I think he was terrific this year. I mean, the whole receiving, the young receivers kind of growing up. You know, it's amazing that, uh, or you know, kind of interesting. If he would have caught that first pass in that first game, you know, he dropped a pass. It wasn't an easy catch, but he dropped a pass and didn't really get those extra opportunities the next couple of games. If he would have caught that, maybe things are a little bit different for, for USC and, and for him getting inserted in the lineup a little bit earlier. And then who knows that Washington State game. Yeah, in that sense, I also have uh, Michael Pittman as stock up. Uh, he thought he broke his ankle in fall camp with that ankle injury, but uh, it set him back a couple games and he told me that he never he wouldn't be a hundred percent until the season was over so that definitely that ankle injury really um bothered him but he was a dual threat in the sense that he was pretty good as a wide receiver and also um on special teams he forced two fumbles on special teams um he had that block punt in the arizona game and then he had that that crazy special teams tr- tomfoolery i guess if you will against ucla <laughs> Um, so that was pretty cool. But as a wide receiver, he definitely stepped up in the Pac-12 championship game and he ended up with 23 receptions for 404 yards and two touchdowns. Um, and I'm very curious to see again with Tyler Vaughn's, like with Michael Pittman, if you had Michael Pittman earlier in the year, if he's able to establish himself, um, how the, the, some of the games go, maybe you have more of an established receiver with Pittman. Um, and he's also a great uh, blocker. So I, I'm curi- I'm very curious to see if he steps us in a leadership role next season and, and how he progresses. Yeah, he's a guy that, you know, if he would have been healthy, he was the, the number one candidate on the outside. Uh, it was Deontay Burnett and Stephen Mitchell was in there as well, but he was coming back from a knee injury. But Michael Pittman was the, the one guy, the only other guy that really had some receptions in the previous season. Now it wasn't much, obviously, his freshman year. He was mostly a special teams player, but he had some. Uh, so he, he was a guy that would have been your primary, you know, your primary target to be a starter on the outside. Instead, he, you know, gets injured uh, in the Coliseum at that practice, and it, you know, it kind of changes the trajectory of his season. You saw him really come on strong down the the end of the season, and he's got a bright future. I know some people, you know, after a couple games, were like, "Oh, he's a bust. He's a five star. We got to put him back at outside linebacker." Where some people thought he could really shine as well as a five star athlete coming out of Oaks Christian, but no, he he proved his worth at, on the outside especially in that the Pac-12 championship game with a couple of huge catches against Stanford. Yeah, for sure. Who else do you got on stock up? You know, one that that's, I think is a gradual stock up throughout the season is John Houston Jr. You know, I, I know there were a lot of complaints mm-hmm. on the message boards about him not getting off blocks and doing things early in the season. I think he really proved himself as the season progressed and, you know, really came into his own in that, that second half, that, that final quarter third of the season I thought he was, he was really good you know he was all over the place you know in those last couple of games making some big plays behind the line of scrimmage at the line of scrimmage and you know he gives you you know with him and Cam Smith they're two different types of guys so they give you you know you, you don't want to have the same same exact guy in the in the middle of that defense Clancy doesn't want he wants two different types of linebackers and I think they play off each other pretty well in there you know filling in for Michael Hutchings who was it was just uh a terrific last season at that at the Mike position, moving Cam Smith over. I thought John Houston really came into his own after the beginning of the season. 
a lot of people on our message boards want to move him out of that position and put somebody else in there. Uh, the, the coaches stuck with him, and, and I think that, that he rewarded them. I completely agree. He he was all over the place against Ohio State. He had a good game. Um, I always thought it was kind of a little bit um, a lot. There was a lot on, on uh, John Houston's plate in the sense that he – didn't have really much playing time coming to the season, and then boom, you're expected expected to be the starter. Um, and not only that, uh, Cam Smith was out for that first half, so he just got thrown into the fire um, against at the start of the season, and then really progressed. Whereas um, he could have gotten down on himself, but he really just stuck with it, and I think he definitely uh, improved over the course of the season. Okay, so I have two more on stock up. I have Rasheem Green. I thought he was underrated this season. Um, he played pretty much the whole season with an injury. He had that ankle injury, and then he had that soldier, shoulder injury, but he really held it down, um, especially when guys got hurt, like Port Augustine and, and uh, Christian Rector. He really held it down in the middle. Um, he had a team leading 10 sacks, five QB hurries, four PBUs, and one fumble force. I thought he um, was just ballistic in the uh, Ohio State game. We already talked about him last week. He played really well. Um, so definitely stock up for him. And then lastly, Chase McGrath, stock up. I mean, he was the guy who came into the season, was a walk-on. Um, he wasn't the starter. He wasn't the guy who people projected as the starter. Michael Brown was kind of that guy. Um, Michael Brown was actually named the starter. And then all of a sudden you have, um, he tears his ACL and then boom, Chase McGrath, you're the guy. Um, he was 12-17. He missed one PAT and then uh, his first uh, field goal he missed, and his last field goal he missed, but in between there he was pretty good. Uh, he definitely stepped up when the team needed him, and he made the game winner against Texas, and that's pretty much, I, I think that's a memory he's going to remember for a while. Oh, yeah, definitely. He'll remember that one. Now, I, I would say, you know, he, his stock is definitely up from, you know, where he began the season as a walk-on, just kind of, you know, Michael Brown's expected to have the job, and, you know, coming out of the camp, you know, there's a battle because neither one of the guys was kicking very well. John Baxter was not worried, but, you know, Chase McGrath wins the battle and, you know, he kind of, you know, put himself out there, especially in that Texas game and showcased what he could do. I thought though at the end of the season, he struggled a little bit. So I don't know if I would go with a complete stock up on that one. So He's are like you a, saying this could nope, be nope, stock neutral? I'm not saying it's a stock yes, neutral. you are. There's no such thing. I totally set you up for this too. I put Chase McGrath at the end just because I knew you'd have some problem with it. Oh, this is perfect. You walked directly into it, Chase nope. McGrath. I, stock neutral. You didn't even let me You heard finish. it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Throw a stock neutral in there when there's no stock neutral. Mhm. Mhm. So then, where would you have him? I think his stock went up, and then I thought it dropped at the end of the season so from where it had, had climbed up to. Now, if you're looking at where it was comparatively to in, you know, coming out of the spring, when Michael Brown you know, pretty much should have been the guy, then, yeah, obviously his stock is up. But I also thought his stock dipped at the end. So then would you put him in stock down? I, I would put the entire special teams in stock down. Mm. Let's, let's just start there with, with Nice stock segue. Down. It's stock team. neutral, but okay. Start with stock down. Let's go. There's no stock neutral. Just cut that crap out. You are up, you're down. We're nope. not doing no stock neutral. No. Nope. Oh, we were, we were similar. We were doing whatever. Get out of here. Get out of here with that mess. Because no, up not. and down nope. describes what happened to the stock. If the stock did oh, not my. change, it's stock neutral. Okay, continue. No, we're we're anyway, segueing stock to stock down. <laughs> Special teams. Yes. Special teams was very bad, very, very bad at the end of the season um, because your best parts of special teams, Chase McGrath, he kind of struggled towards the end of the season. He missed a couple more at the end of the season than he did early. I mean, throughout most of the season. 
and also Reed Budrovich. I, I thought he would have been he was kind of a weapon for him early in the season, being able mm-hmm. to kick the ball away from guys and, and you know getting some you know pinning some guys deep. And then at, you know in that the Cotton Bowl he had I think three punts that were 31 yards or less. Uh, you know, and he had some struggles in a couple of the other games late in the season. So we'll see how those both of those positions, you know, progress because now you have four guys that are on scholarship for the kicker and the punter positions, which is an extraordinary amount because a lot some schools some coaches don't believe in giving special teams scholarships out, and if they do, it's to a a fifth year senior or you know a kicker that's been kicking for them for three years or something. All right, the last year we got an extra scholarship, we'll give it to you. These guys are on, you know, they've got multiple years remaining for, for some of these guys on their scholarships. So USC is, is kind of uh, putting itself, you know, putting a little debt down on their special teams. And the special teams has not responded and given them this tremendous play to boost up for as much time as they spend in practice and as much effort as, as they expend uh, both you know, scholarship-wise and with the time in practice. They're just not getting uh, the, the ROI, the return on investment there, since we're talking about stocks and everything else. So, you know, I, the, the coverage units were not great. Um, the the punt coverage unit was pretty good. Uh, the, the kickoff coverage unit was okay. There was They let some guys out. The kickoff return and punt return units were bad. So, you know, the special teams overall has to improve next year. Yeah. There has to be some changes made. You know, even if it's if – the, if the special teams doesn't make a drastic improvement – then what needs to happen is just take all that time away from special teams because if you're going to already suck, you might as well not waste time on it. Yeah, I agree. For the amount of time that they spend, and they actually have a special teams coach, you wouldn't know that by the way they played. Um, so I got some, I have some little stats that I looked up because I was very curious. I was like, how much of this is an Adoree thing? Um, ver- meaning Adoree made the special teams look better than it actually is. Um, so... Disclaimer, though, before I say this, USC played an extra game this year, so in the averages, that kind of factors into it. But USC average on kick return, USC averaged 64.4 yards total per game, meaning that's how many kickoff return yards they had in the game. Opponents this year averaged 82.6. Um, last year, USC averaged 71.5 uh, total yards per game, and their opponents averaged 57.8. So that's a drop-off between um, how much they're letting their opponents get per game um and then in punt return and do that first on kickoff returns a part of that is you lose matt bormeister and he was very good at getting touchbacks yes you get a touchback you don't get return anything so then the few they do return you know that's that's a weapon they didn't have this year um because i I just didn't feel like well michael brown at the beginning of the season they were hoping he could be a similar similar weapon on the kickoff uh unit but instead you end up having to switch through you know a couple different guys with chase mcgrath having to take over the spot and Rebudrovich having to take over for him you know, after he got injured late in the season. So, you know, injuries did play a part into the special team's woes as, as far as the kicking. But, you know, that was one of the things they didn't have. There was, there was a couple weapons, not just Adoree, but th- that was one of them as well that, that probably w- would go overlooked. Yeah. I mean, Chase McGrath had a 33% touchback percentage this season. When you look at last season um, – Matt Boardmeister had 50%. So, like you said, there's definitely a drop-off. Um, and as far as punt return, the Dory factor, USC had four, 414 return yards um, last year. And then USC had 229 this season return yards. So, uh, that's almost half of what they had last season. And, and that's not even adding in um, a game 
for last season. So definite a drop off from what we see. And you could you could tell that just by watching the season. Here's a couple things that also factored into that. One, I thought the gunners on the outside and, and just the blockers in general as a whole just didn't do as good of a job this year. I mean, Adore, when he caught punts, he usually ha- he, it's not like he was doing the Dante Hall with Kansas City where he was three guys missed before he actually gained a yard. You know, he actually had some space before he would take off run, you know, before he got into having to juke somebody out or whatever and then using his speed and his ability. You know, it wasn't like he was just catching the ball, making three guys miss, but they were about to tackle him every single time. You know, I thought he, he they had did a better job last year as a unit just giving him opportunities. And also I, I think the, the offense was so inconsistent this year that you had a lot of times where they would get a couple first downs and just kind of stall out near midfield. Um, so the, you have to punt the ball there. You know, I think it was just there were a number of things that added to it, and that's on the, the coverage unit more than, than the return unit. But I thought that there were just areas that a lot of small things went into it as well as when you have number two back there, it's, it's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, I had the offensive line for Stockdown. Um, it was, I did it well. Yeah. It was so interesting when I looked at the Stanford game because the Stanford game, or at least the first one of the season, that really showed what was possible. You know, that kind of got people's hopes up too much in the sense that USC had 307 yards rushing. If you remember that game, Stephen Carr and Ronald Jones looked like a one-two duo that was going to cause some havoc. And they definitely did, but not as much as they did against Stanford. Um, And then it just kind of went downhill. I mean, there's also injuries. Some of the guys are younger, but... They just they underachieved in the UCLA game. Um, we all hyped up coming into the UCLA game that U- UCLA had the worst run defense, and then look what happened. They didn't. They Rojo didn't even pass. I forgot who it was. I think it was Charles White on the rushing list, and, and Rojo did not look happy after the game just because they underachieved. Was what? Was Simpson? Maybe. Maybe. Or was I that think the, so? That's a I don't know. Twelve championship. Uh, one of those, one of those one famous of, guys who yeah. won the USC. Sure, let's go with that. Um, and then everyone knows how bad the Ohio State game and how the offensive line played in that. It's just, it was just not good. They allowed 30 sacks compared to 12 last year. Um, I know that a lot of guys didn't have experience coming into this year, but this is also Neil Calloway's second year on the job, and I thought that some consistency would have helped, um, but they just underperformed this season. And obviously, you lose three guys that go to the NFL and have played a little bit this year. I think all three of the guys have. Uh, then it, it, you're going to hurt from that. Mm-hmm. And guys like and Zach Banner and, and Chad Wheeler were very good on the edges of keeping pressure away from Darnold, letting him step up into it. Whereas this year, I think they had more edge pressure than they did last year. You know, where he was where he was trying to scramble away outside rather than trying than being able to step up inside. Um, I, I think that was part of it. But I, I think the biggest issue with the offensive line to me is the, the run blocking. Because like you said, after that Stanford game, you're like, okay, this team can be physical. They can kind of impose their will. And, you know, they can open up some Mack truck holes like that one for Stephen Carr, yeah. the, his 50-yard run to the left against Stanford in the first game. And then it just kind of wasn't there. Now part of it was the mix and match. You know, you got some guys get injured. However, last year they had guys get injured. Zach mm-hmm. Banner was out for a little bit. Chad Wheeler was out a different time. So you had some issues there uh, with, with having to, to mix and match. This year it was the same thing, but you're throwing in some young 
younger guys, and there were some communication issues at times. You know, just the overall, I thought it was a, a downgrade from last year, where I thought the unit, you know, really progressed throughout the season. They were able to sh- to, to kind of show that physicality late in the season, uh, you know, and, and kind of win some games late by, you know, imposing their will. Whereas this year, it seemed like it, it was all kind of the Sam Donald show. Yeah, which, and we've talked about this before, but the fact that we were hearing that there were miscommunication issues in the Ohio State game, how they couldn't get the run game going, that there's no excuse for that. I mean, at that point, pretty much everyone was settled into their role. Um, they had extra time to prepare. How is that happening at this point in the season? It just, it makes you very skeptical of what's happening in that regard. Yep. <laughs> Who else you got? I also have the tight ends. You know, you look at that position last year, and it was a weapon. I mean, you had Daniel Amorabebe was, was making catches over the middle and making defenses pay. Uh, you know, you thought coming back this year, you got extra depth now. Amorabebe, you got Petit, you got Kerry Angeline, you know, the six foot eight uh, tight end. We're going to use him in the red zone type of thing. You bring in two guys. You got a blocker in Eric Cromenhook. You got a, a, a guy that can catch the ball and kind of make defenses do similar things to Amorabebe and Josh Follow. And then the tight ends just were not very good as a unit. I mean, just overall, first you lose Kerry Angeline. You know, he just doesn't feel like he's getting the love in the room. So he decides he's going to transfer. So you lose a target there. You also have Daniel Morbebe, who's banged up his hip, you know, bothered him for at least half the season. He still didn't look as explosive when he came back. And then, you know, Tyler Petit was banged up a little bit. You have to put in some of these, fre- put in the freshmen, using them more. I just thought that the tight ends, they didn't block as well this year. You know, I thought overall just the position as a, as a whole, you know, definitely took a dip from last year and you expected it to be a position of strength this year. Instead, it was a weakness. Yeah, it's funny because I actually had the tight end position too and you just went down my, my notes and said everything. But I completely agree. <laughs> and especially when you look at how much... Daniel was that secret weapon for, for Donald a lot last season and when you miss that... Um, I think it definitely played a part in Darnold's numbers in the beginning, having receivers that he's comfortable with. And I also thought Tyler Petit was not as mobile as we've seen him, as we've come to see him, because even looking at 2016 highlights, Tyler Petit had more yards after the catch. He looked more mobile, whereas this season it seemed like uh, he would kind of catch the ball and then kind of fall. Or not. that was kind of it. You know, he had a radius and that was pretty much it for Tyler Petit. So it, I think they definitely um, underperformed. And then uh, they always say that, that Baxter's saying is, uh, if you're a tight end, you better block well, or, or else you're just a bad wide receiver, and we have better wide receivers than you. <laughs> and so they didn't even, I don't, think, I don't think they blocked well this season. So it definitely was a stock down for me as well. The, the overall unit just went down. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there has to be some adjustments there because especially if you're going to be starting a younger quarterback next year, and what, what's, a, what's a quarterback safety blanket? A, good tight end over the middle mm-hmm. knowing that you know you have that you can check down if you don't have something the receivers your tight end is going to be there for you I, I think it makes such a difference for a young quarterback if he has somebody that he can throw to and trust in the middle of the field uh, like a Daniel Morabebe was last year for Sam Darnold to make some plays and, and you know open up things for the for the defense uh, or open up the defense a little bit for the offense yeah I, I think that the tight ends have to play better next year as well so that's I wasn't going to put John Baxter on the list because I didn't want to put any coaches in particular, but that's two position groups that are his. So yeah, they, they've got to make some improvements there. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I also had stocked down on Pac-12 refs, 
and Pac-12 scheduling. Now, these are two separate things, but they're all part of the Pac-12. Um, as far as Pac-12 refs go, um, we already mentioned it, actually. The Wazoo offensive uh, pass interference on Tyler Vaughn's that maybe decides the game. Um, the stoppage of time during the U of A game. So, and there's a billion oh, other... Oh, so bad. Yeah, there's a billion, bajillion other... Oh, and the ASU game? That whole nonsense? You remember that when they had to get all the teams oh, back on the Barrett. field? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, I just went to the locker room that one. I was like, oh, peace out. This is extra time I can work on photos. Yeah, you were like, peace And all that time, all that extra time for, for the ASU game and the Arizona game, just, you know, all the time that was just wasted talking about things. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't, I mean, I think most of the time they came up with the right decision, but they didn't always. So if you're going to take that much time and you're not always going to get it right, just don't take that much time. And, <laughs> and then, and add on to that, you have the Pac-12 referees in the postseason. I mean, you even have the, I think it was the Kentucky athletic director sending a letter to the Pac-12 and complaining about the referees after the Kentucky running back Benny Snell got thrown out of the game for quote unquote putting his hands on the referee when the referee was the one trying to put his hands on the running back and he just kind of shushed his hands away like no I don't need your help I don't want your help at all and it was kind of it's a you know another black eye on the conference you know it was just bad it's it's been bad it continues to be bad and you know David Coleman the director of officiating said hey we're really working hard on this y'all need to work a lot harder it's got to be something else done because it's bad agreed Agreed. Um, and, and, and to that point, I feel like there's a lot of calls that we just can't remember at this point. But there were, I mean, uh, even the, the Port Augustine uh, roughing the passer. Like, there's just so many calls that were like, what? And, like, you scratch your head and it changes things in the game. So that is why Pac-12 refs are stocked down. I also said Pac-12 scheduling, so I think I should do a little spiel about that. We already know. Nope. No bye week. Friday night row game on short rest. You're not giving the best teams in your conference a chance to succeed. Who cares about parity? Let your best teams. Give them a fair shot. Um, do better, Pac-12. That's what I got to say. It's not You don't have to cater to your top team. Well, yeah. I, I, I kind of phrased it like that, them. but don't do that. <laughs> Just don't hurt them. Yes, I mean, yes. Don't out of your way to make it so your best teams can't make it to the playoff, which is what happened, it seemed like. Well, that's why I said give it a chance to succeed. How is how is USC supposed to have no bye week and do a Friday night road game on short rest? That's just preposterous. I just don't understand. Preposterous. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's all I got for stock down. Oddly enough. I got too. I mean, I could I could add some more stuff, but we're gonna keep. I had to put some stuff and change it too. So yeah, I had to we're gonna, s- spread the love. No, we got some negative still coming though. <laughs> so what do you got? Oh. Keep it. Well, I have the running backs. As a receiving threat. I thought that was something that <laughs> R.I.P., not R.I.P., but Dylan McCullough brought in um, as, the co- as the running backs coach. Um, he put them on the drugs machine. He made sure they were catching. I remember the whole big funny thing in fall camp was, hey, Rojo's actually catching passes now. Um, so I thought that was, they kind of shied away from it towards the end of the, the season, but I thought that was pretty uh, a good thing to have. Um, you mentioned the Rojo one uh, against, I think, U of A. Uh, so Stephen Carr ended up having 17 receptions for 188 yards. Rojo had 14 receptions for 187 yards. Even said Ware got some love. He had six receptions for 62 yards. Um, so that was a big change, and I like adding that dimension to the offense. Um, just last year, Justin Davis had the most as a running back, and he only had 14 receptions. So um, I thought that was a good thing that Dylan McCullough kind of brought back and um, made 
the running backs better uh, receiving threats, um, and I would like to keep that. Yeah, and they weren't just, you know, screen passes. These aren't just all checkdowns and stuff. They were mm-hmm. actually routes run. You know, the Texas game, you look at Stephen Carr, you know, catching that angle route against Texas for the huge first down late in the game. Uh, you know, the, the Ronald Jones one we talked about. But then also being able to have the screen game. They've got to get the screen game incorporated a little bit more, I think. And yeah. to do that, I think – numbers could even increase even more and with Stephen Carr he is a receiver that can run the ball uh, he is a unique dynamic player if they can find a way to truly utilize all his skill sets next season he's going to be on the path for what I said is going to happen when he's a junior when he wins the Heisman wow I know you I heard thought. you heard it on the family feud podcast so in a couple of years when that happens we will we will refer to this podcast <laughs> Uh, I had the, you know, a couple of these I'd already touched, uh, you know, we touched down earlier in, in stock up, but I keep it the wide receiver playmaking. Mm. Now I know Darius Rogers and Juju Smith uh, made a bunch of plays for USC, but the fact that the young guys were going and making plays, you know, especially that Ohio state game and how much their confidence grew throughout the season, I thought was crucial for this team. I want you to keep that and carry it on for the next season because those young guys are coming back and they're going to be a, a good solid uh, they got a solid core there with Pittman and, and Tyler Vaughns and even Trayvon Sydney with a little bit of time he had now you add in Tyler uh, excuse me uh, <laughs> double Lewis. Tyler Vaughns <laughs> yeah you got a second Tyler Vaughns in there you'd be really oh <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah you get Joseph Lewis in there you add him I think he's only going to grow uh, you know if you can get Joshua Motorbebe thrown in there I, I think you've got a lot of dynamic weapons on that that team you know, with Amon Ross ain't recommending it, whether you use him inside or outside, I think that that position group has a great core. Starting with those two older guys, I mean, the two guys that, that have had the most playing time, I think just the fact that they were able to make some plays down the stretch, I think that group is going to really kind of carry the offense next season. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you saw a little bit of growing pains from that position group this season. Um, so next season will definitely be a uh, a really interesting uh, season as far as the wide receivers are going to be back and they're going to they're going to do some some big things. I had keep it characters and wins. Um, I think there were a lot of games, and we mentioned this before. All things considered, USC could have thrown in the towel um, and not come back and not push for a win. Um, we mentioned how in previous uh, coaching staffs, maybe that wouldn't have happened, but this team definitely um, uh, charged back especially the Texas game, the Utah game, even though they let the team back in, they, they ultimately got those wins. Um, so if you take away that resilience, they definitely could have lost um, more games this season. So character and wins. Keep keep the character, keep fighting, fighting on, if you will. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, you know, I also had, I, you know, talking a little bit about this, the defensive line, their game-over-game performance. I thought that group just continued to get better and better as the season progressed. Uh, some of those young players that get thrown in, Brandon Peely halfway through the season, you know, get thrown in. And I thought they just continued to get better. Malik Jordan was really good at the end of the year for a guy that people didn't expect much out of, maybe to begin the season outside of the locker room. Uh, you know, I thought that group was really good and continued to get better, which is a sign of really good coaching about it. Yeah, I agree. And in that sense, I have the defense keeping being resilient when they, they give USC's offense gifts and then – USC wouldn't really do anything with them, or USC would have a turnover. There's so many ter- turnovers this season, and USC did. The USC's defense did pretty well of limiting the damage um, from what the offense did. Um, so I think keeping that, keeping that up, keeping a stout defense, keep that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, they were really good early in the season. You know, as far as you know, taking 
control when, when they were putting bad field position and stuff and, and getting some stops and holding teams to three points rather than seven points. They did really well on that. Now, in the Cotton Bowl, you know, they didn't really – they couldn't couldn't get those same stops, and, that, you know, that was part of the, the issue for USC because they gave away 21 points on turnovers in that game. Uh, but one of the other things that I had is, is underrated freshmen being able to step in. You know, you come in, you have, you have five-star guys like Austin Jackson. You're like, hey, maybe this guy will get some playing time this year, Joseph Lewis, Stephen Carr. And those guys did. They got some playing time. But I also was impressed by the three-star guys, the guys that were under the radar. You know, Brandon Peely coming from Alaska by way of Oregon. You know, also uh, Juliana Falanico, a guy that people were like, oh, he, there's no way he's going to play this year. He's, he's got to add more weight. Um, he came out there, and he was a, a good special teams player for him. Levi Jones, even though he was a little bit more heralded, was really good on special teams with Bubba Bolton. But then also Andrew Voorhees, a three-star offensive lineman. He's the guy that, that was able to get in there and, you know, and became a starter for him. So I thought that you know, USC, I know people always complain, oh, that guy's only a three-star. Why is USC getting them instead of all these four-stars and five-stars? Well, sometimes the three-stars are pretty darn good. And USC showed, you know, they showed their ability to evaluate this year with, with a couple of those guys being you know, able to step in and help out. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, my next key fit is a little ironic. Um, and like I said before, I wrote this before all of this happened. I said, keep the Dylan McCullough type hires. Um, I thought that was a very smart hire. He had, he now has four consecutive early, uh, entries into the NFL draft. Um, maybe five if you include him. Um, but, uh, <laughs> just, I think surrounding yourself with experience, and surrounding yourself with guys that might not have a USC tie or might not have a family connection. For me, I don't know why that seems better, but it does. <laughs> um, especially because how well the Dillon hire uh, went. Um, so for me, I would keep that. I would at least attempt to know as much as you can, interview as many people as you can. And hey, if you do that and then see that the guy... Um, underneath the guy who left is great then do that but I don't like just hey let's let's promote this this guy in our program you know I I would like to keep seeing the the Dylan McCullough type hires or at least attempt search for those type of guys you just don't want it to be an auto promotion I mean I think that's the biggest issue is like you don't want it to okay well we already have somebody we don't need to look outside I mean someone I think on the P actually said is like USC needs to institute uh, something similar to the Rooney Rule. Now, it doesn't have to be a minority candidate, but a candidate outside the realm of what's already on campus, what's already in the family. That's what they need to have a a rule to make sure that someone gets at least, you know, uh, vetted from outside. Make sure that you're looking at all the possibilities rather than just assuming that what we have in house is automatically going to be the right thing. That's hilarious. And I actually think that wouldn't be a bad idea. I, I completely agree with it. Sometimes <laughs> on the people you know what they're talking about. Sometimes. Keyword, sometimes. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, that's all I got for Keep It. That's it for me, too. What about changing? How, how, I think you're rolling deep over there for changing, aren't you? <laughs> I'm rolling so deep. Um, okay, I had don't let teams back into the game. Um, a lot of times this season, it felt like once USC had a comfortable lead, a good lead in the game, they would get too comfortable. Um, it almost felt like the the team played better, more succinct, at least the offense, when they had their backs against the wall. I mean, how many uh, two-minute drills did we see? You know, how many games shouldn't have been close based on what happened in the game? I mean, I went through Western Michigan, shouldn't have been as close. Texas, shouldn't have been as close. Utah, Arizona, Colorado, UCLA. 
Um, Oregon State probably would have been too close if Oregon State just wasn't abysmal. Um, the, the Pac-12 Stanford game, they opened the door for Stanford to come back in. Um, there were just so many games where they just didn't have their quote-unquote killer instinct um, and they just let teams hang around more than they should have. Yeah, I think that that's just an issue of consistency. And even the games when they, they lost, you know, they had opportunities to get back in them and they just couldn't consistently put things together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the, obviously the Ohio State game, when you're in the game on three consecutive drives inside the 18, you know, you lose by, what, 17 points. That's three scoring drives. You've got zero points out of them. Uh, you know, that. And then even the Notre Dame game, and, you know, we talked about it. And I know I know some people were upset that I said, you know, kind of every little bounce went wrong. And, you know, that's just kind of what happened in that game. Well, it was, it was that. And Notre Dame put a beating on them because of it. <laughs> but every time that USC could have had something go their way and they could have, you know, made some momentum, they couldn't, they couldn't make the play to make something happen. Every time the ball would bounce away from them or whatever it would be, uh, you know, they had bad luck in that game and they didn't take advantage of opportunities. And because of that, they got beat down in that game. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a lot of these games were USC beating themselves more than anything else. Or just not helping themselves also. I, I think just not taking advantage of opportunities. And, you know, part of that is, is one of my, uh, one of my things is, is showing up in big games. You mm-hmm. know, they had opportunities to really make showcase – you know, showcase themselves and, you know, put a big stamp on the season, these big opportunities to win games on national stage and, you know, push themselves up the poles and whatnot to, to give themselves a shot at the college football playoff. And they did. You know, they win that Notre Dame game. Obviously, they got beat down in that game, so you can't just say if they won that game. But, you know, that was in such a big stage that if they did something in that game, then they're probably in the playoff maybe, mm-hmm. or they're at least in the consideration with Ohio State and Alabama rather than being completely left out like it was nothing. Uh, so, you know, USC had to, to do better in the big games, and, and I thought they instead they kind of shelled up. You know, they you know talked about how they, they just, oh, we didn't come out prepared. We weren't, we didn't come out with energy. Like, how do you, what? What are you talking about? Get yeah. out there with some energy then. It's the big game. That's where you're supposed to be hyped up. You're supposed to be out there going crazy and getting ready to go. Instead, that was the games where they are like, oh, it, what happened? Yeah, uh, I took a nap during the game. <laughs> Where does that stem from? Like, how how does that happen? Why do some teams have that big game mentality and then some just don't? I mean, I, I think it starts with your leaders, and, and you know, I think USC had really good leaders, vocal leaders on the defensive side, didn't necessarily have that on the offensive side. I think you know your leadership in the locker room, especially at the collegiate level, can determine so much because it can determine you know if guys stay focused, if guys you know, are, are constantly doing what they're supposed to off the field to make sure that they're ready on the field. And, you know, you see that in other sports as well. But, you know, it takes somebody to keep everybody in place, even if it's not the best player. Your best players don't have to be the guys that, that put everybody in your place. It can be a walk-on. But if that walk-on is respected in the locker room by everybody, then, you know, whatever this guy says, or it could be the biggest guy, whatever Porter Augustine says, that's what goes, guys. So if you're not if you're goofing off in the weight room or – you know, in the summer workouts, you're not going full speed, and Port Augustine tells you that you got to do it, or whoever the leader is. You know, then then everybody does it. Then it changes the dynamic of the game the, of the team because everyone stays locked in uh, much more, and you don't have to rely on the coaches telling somebody every single time, "Hey, we got we got to be ready for this. We got to be you know whatever." Yeah, and in that sense, I'm going to pull an audible and add already to my big change it list. There needs to be a change in practice. 
whether that's going more full pads, bringing more physicality, there needs to be something where players are on their toes. They're not as comfortable each practice and know exactly what's going to happen. So they know, okay, I can kind of take this play off. Okay, I don't have to really battle for my position. You know, I think that there needs to be some type of change because if you're in cruise control at practice, you will probably be in cruise control for part of games, you know, I think practice like you play is the same because it's a thing, you know, I think that something needs to be addressed, looked at, changed when it comes to how USC practices. Yeah, I actually have more physical practices than one of my changes. Now, mine's a little counterintuitive because I had injuries slash more physical practices. Now <laughs> that you don't have 12 weeks in a row, you, you got to get more physical practices. There should be the, the bowl game preparation should have been more than one full pad practice. Ryan's talked about how he is, he's taught with players, and they say it's a different mentality. When you go in and you realize, hey, we're going full pads today, you, you ch- it changes your mindset as you go out to the field because you know you're going to hit a little bit. Uh, but also, there's so many injuries this year that USC may not be able to do that in a regular season. But So you got to take care of your players a little bit better somehow. Maybe it was just all bad luck, but it just seemed like there were so many players. I mean – I think it was like 20-something players at one point that were on the, the injury report that we put out. Yeah. Just because, and we, we don't normally put out an injury report, but there were just so many that we had to just count and tally it up. But, you know, it was crazy in the middle of that season after, you know, kind of after that Texas game. And, and part of that is you play a couple of, of really uh, physical teams in a row, you're going to get beat up a little bit. So, you know what? If you're more physical than the other team, you start beating up on teams. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we haven't really seen from USC. And, you know, Clay Helton – Talked about when he got the job. He wants to be a physical run first team. Well, if you want to be physical, you got to practice physical. You got to play physical, you got to practice physical. You can't just lollygag on, on Monday through Thursday and expect on Saturday you just come out there and turn it on. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, exactly. And I don't understand why that's a thing. Like, I don't understand. Like, Helton did this uh, for the Wisconsin Holiday Bowl. He did this this year. I just, why, why not? Why is there, I feel like Helton would know by now that that's something that needs to be changed. Yeah, I feel like Helton, uh, you know, especially the year before the Holiday Bowl, he felt like the team had gone through so much mentally, physically throughout that season uh, that, you know, maybe they didn't need to go. They didn't need to go full pads all the time. And they, they didn't play terrible in that game. They came out a little bit flat. But they, they played pretty good in that game. You know, I, I think that part of it is you have to know your team. And I don't think that, that USC's coaching staff the, the last two years has got a full sense you know, a consistent sense. That was a big issue this year. I mean, they changed things. It worked great. They, they played some music on the Thursday or Friday walkthrough before going to ASU. They went out and they beat the crap out of ASU. So, hey, oh, wait, is this all oh, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb? If we change something, maybe something will change. So you're in a rut, change something. I mean, I was screaming for that. I, I can't remember which game it was. The, was it after Notre I think it was after the Notre Dame game. I was screaming for that leading into the, the ASU game. I was like, hey, they got to change something. And then when they came out, it was kind of lackadaisical practice. It wasn't until after the media wasn't there for the Thursday practice, the Friday practice, that they actually made a change and, and you saw what can happen when you when you switch some things up. Well, to your point about the coaching staff kind of knowing the team, that was Chris Hawkins who actually went to Helton and suggested um, the music and loosening up. And so I think, I think that's something that um, is a good point that you made. I don't think the, the coaching staff really has um, a firm grasp on the, on the team in that sense. And I think that a little bit goes back to the leadership. It took someone like Chris Hawkins to go tell them, 
So, you know, maybe if there are a couple more leaders, particularly on that offensive side of the ball, maybe someone else could have gone and said something at a different time, and it may have, you know, reversed course before, I don't know, the Washington State game or, you know, one of the games where there was, you know, when the team wasn't playing great, could have boosted them a little bit if they had done something a little bit different. But you got to have those leaders that know that know that they can talk to the coach and tell them what's truly going on versus, you know, everybody just, you know, laying back and, and taking whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go a little bit rapid fire since I have so many. Um, and it's kind of, these two are kind of wrapped into everything we just talked about. I said handling injuries. I thought it was a little suspect how they handled certain injuries this season. Um, Port Augustine's. You mean, you mean Port Augustine? <laughs> the, the ghost of Port Augustine. We have to mention it every podcast, apparently. But uh, yep. Port Augustine's was so weird. Um, oh, he's day to day. Days to days? Like 30 days to days? <laughs> it Up was. The month? Yeah, it was just it was it was handled so oddly and one may say poorly. I mean, the fact that they had him on a quote unquote pitch count against ASU and he went over that, and then we never saw him again. Um, it was kind of weird, and we didn't really know the origin of his where his toe injury where it stemmed from. Um, I just thought that was pretty weird. And then the whole um, it was interesting because T. Martin kind of talked about this. He said that with Stephen Mitchell's shoulder injury, he kind of played him too early. And that's why they held Deontay Burnett out for longer. So it was kind of, it's almost like sometimes they're letting the players aside. Sometimes they're not. When they let players aside, when they let doctors aside, who has the ultimate call call was always kind of interesting to me because I was like, is it seniority? So the the older guys get that say versus their younger Helton gets that say. I don't know. It was interesting how everything was handled because I don't feel like they have a firm grasp on, okay, this guy's too injured or, okay, Totally. Let's have you play. Okay, we won't see you for the rest of the season. You know, it's a little weird. Yeah, definitely. And even the Porter Custon, the initial injury. You yeah. You know, we thought, yeah. oh, it's his toe, his toe. And, he, you know, after the game, after the, I think it was the Texas game, he was like, you know, actually my bicep being ripped is actually bothering me a little bit more. Like, what? what? <laughs> yeah, double take? What? <laughs> like, nobody, like, nobody even knew anything about that. He's like, oh, yeah, my bicep's torn. I've done this as well. I'm like, Okay, and then he sits out for a while, and they're like, "Yeah, the bicep's good, the toe is coming back. We're only going to play him, you know, probably twenty. I think they said twenty plays, and then they, or maybe they said twenty-five. No, they said twenty plays, and he went forty-two, I think, or forty-three. And it's like, why are you doubling up what you said? Just stick with what you said, especially in a game where you were dominating it for, at at halftime. You exactly, him out then, wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. I also very um, frustrating because the one thing as a media person you always want is people to be healthy and to play their full potential. And so it's very frustrating when someone they're bringing them back. We're gonna bring them back slowly. They don't, and then the person gets injured even worse because of it. It's it's, it's it was kind of a uh, something that makes you wonder about the coaching staff, the medical staff, whoever is making that decision. Like whose interests are uh, are they? actually thinking about when they are allowing this player to play double of what they had set for him. Yeah, I I don't understand. Especially, it was and it was disappointing because you actually saw in that ASU game, having Porter Gusson back did extra damage. That was the game that, that uh, Utena had multiple sacks. You know, it, it, it definitely had its um, its effect and not having him there definitely uh, hindered the team throughout the season. So my also my, my second bullet point was 
uh, change it. Have some passion. Have some fire. Have some fun. I literally mentioned, it's so funny you mentioned this, because in my notes I said, the podcast where we told, you told the team to get loose, to play music. We all were calling for it. Um, And like we said, that's what they did before the ASU game. Um, And the results showed that. And it was so interesting to me because I talked to Sam Darnold after the ASU game. And I asked him, because everything, that's what the main theme we heard from the team after the ASU game was, oh, we played loose. We were loose. There was music. We were loose. You know, it was just like loose, loose, loose over and over again. And I was like, well, what made the difference? And he said, I just need to get out of my head. I just need to have fun. Um, I play better when I have fun. And, and I'm not just doing this just to, the, you know, go through the motions. Um, so it was really interesting to see how much did, as a whole, I'm curious, how much did the expectations of, this season weigh on the team how much did they feel like okay we gotta prove um what people said about us how much do we have to help out helton i don't know i'm speculating here but i think they just got too tight at times um too mundane if you will and they kind of lost that fire i mean losing juju and adori who were very electric both on the field and off the field definitely played into that and having guys that were more reserved in leadership positions plays into that but I think you need to have that passion, that fire to have fun and motivate your team. Um, so if you can change that, if you can add that in back somehow, I think that would be very beneficial to the team going forward. And to go into what you said about Darnold, maybe don't overload your student athletes with you know yeah. all the media requests and then adding a podcast and you know just other things. You know, especially if it gets to the point where he says, "Hey." You know, I need to get out of my own head. Maybe that's time to like, oh, we're going to take a two-week hiatus this week or whatever. Uh, give him a little reprieve because if your best player is struggling with, him own, with his own self, then he's probably going to struggle with other teams as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think it should be looked back on how much Donald did in the offseason. You know, he went to the Elite 11 um, he had so many features about him. He had the, he started the podcast, you know. And then how many PRPs was he at? You know, I mean, at least open to the media, we didn't see him that much. Um, so I don't think he missed any PRPs. I think the bigger issue is the in season stuff because then you start in the off season. The media can come and hey, the, the LA Times can go down to Zach's house and hang out with him and stuff. But what I'm just Whatever. saying is like my point then, is when, having once you him. Get the season, though, but once you get in the season, then you have to, you know, you're you're taking classes and stuff too, and you're adding these extra responsibilities outside of the norm of where, hey, we need you to actually study film rather yeah. than podcast. Take that extra hour and put it into game prep. That's what we need from you, not not you know, sounding good or you you know having an extra media appearance. You need to actually be focused on the game prep. So I'm not saying that Sam Donald wasn't. I'm just saying if there's extra time, that's probably what it should be going into. Uh, and then maybe you don't see a safety creep in, you, you don't look and you don't see him, and he takes it back for pick six in the uh, cotton ball. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess from my offseason point, it wasn't directly about PRPs, but if he feels like the offseason hype got too much into his head, if you let him do what he likes to do, be in the zone and not have to do so many interviews or do whatever and just be a kid, you know, and just have a, a offseason – Maybe that would have helped him coming into the season and how exhausting the season was. I don't know. Speculating, of course. But I'm just saying I think that that certain aspects of Sam's, um, the the things that Sam had to do could have been done better. And, hey, maybe it, come, it comes down to him, too, learning, you know, what he can handle and what he can't. Because, you know, as someone who likes to stay up and not sleep and work a lot, 
you know, sometimes you have to put limits on yourself. Like, uh, I actually need to sleep a little bit. Yes. Or, hey, I need to take a break from, you know, even if it's a break from football. Sam's like, hey, I need to get three hours to go home and, you know, be by the beach or something to clear my head. And you know, you got to know yourself as well. And I think that was a learning experience for Sam Darnold this year, in, in part because of all the attention he did get, you know, coming into the season and throughout the season as well. You know, I think he had to learn about himself that uh, in that regard, too rather than, you know, USC saying, oh, we got this, we'll take care of it. I think he needed to tell them, I, I need a, a little bit of break here. I don't think he probably did that because Sam is such a, a guy that is such uh, giving with his time to the media and everything else and, and being open and available, um, you know, which is great for us. He's a great <laughs> kid, and we wish him the best uh, on the next step. Uh, but it was up to him and the school both to realize that he was being a little bit overloaded and, you know, for somebody to step in there and say, hey, let's pull it, pull back the reins a little bit. Yeah, and, and, and that also goes to my other point. I might change it, and this is not something that UC could control necessarily, but no bye week. I mean, that was something that, as, as talking about burnt out about football, I was so burnt out about football. Like, I, I did not miss a practice this season, and when you got to, like, the later half, of the, the, the two-thirds of the season – it was like, this is too much football. And I'm not even going in doing film with those guys and doing all the things that these guys are doing, let alone being a student on top of it. I think there was, not just for Sam Darnold, a, a major burnout factor that happened for these guys because I don't think they were used to, you had a longer fall camp and then you're having no bye week. That's a lot of football. And, and having a bye week actually does play a big factor. And I think that that really um, had its effect on the team this season. Yeah, you could definitely tell when they actually got the bye week, you know, when they came back. You know, they didn't realize how much of an impact it was going to have. And after that bye week, I feel so refreshed. So I got to go home. I got to do this. I got to spend, you know, spend time doing my own hobbies away from football. And now I feel refreshed. And I came back and I'm ready to go. And, and USC played really well after that, coming, you know, going into the Pac-12 championship and everything. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought, you know, it's, it's a big deal when you have had that extra week at the beginning of the season and you go 12 weeks straight that USC had to contend with that. So uh, I guess you could put change at Pac-12 schedule as well because of how uh, much of a hole they put them in, in in that regard. Yeah, exactly. What else you got? My, la- my last change is is balance. Let's just change the balance. <sighs> Stop with this balance bull crap and stick with what works. You don't need to have balance every game. You need to put the ball in the end zone. So if you're running for 300 yards against Stanford, continue to do that. And that, that felt like the last time they actually did that. Like, oh, yeah, this is working really well. We're just going to do that. And I think we mentioned actually during that game is like, well, this, this seems like a game that Sark or Kiffin might not win because they might try to continue to pass it rather than just sticking with, with what's working on the ground. And then you mention that, and then it becomes like someone heard, like, oh, wait, we don't want to not be like Kiffin and Sark. So they started just – they had to throw the ball as many times as they had to run the ball. Like, we had to get yards for Ronald Jones. We have to get yards for Sam Darnold. So instead of going out there and just, oh, the passing game's working, let's throw for 500 yards. If we only run it for 50, who cares? <laughs> we, we still got 550 yards of total offense. That, they decided, oh, well, we need to make sure that we get equal touches for everyone. And, you know, they tried to be democratic about it when they needed a dictatorship of, of – offense for whoever was going well yeah i don't i don't understand it my whole thought on this and i've said this from the beginning balance is not an identity for your offense and we saw that it just did not work 
Um, stick with what works is what I have to say. I agree. <laughs> um, f- my final point in Change It, um, and now I don't know how much of this uh, is a factor now that Sam Darnold's not here anymore, but turnovers. Um, you can't have that many turnover- turnovers and ha- try and win a game. They had seven games where USC lost in the turnover margin, and yet they only lost three games in the season. So that's pretty crazy. and also contradicts the point I just made. But <laughs> turnovers, you got you got to clean that up. Um, not all of it was Sam Darnold's fault, but it would kill any momentum that USC would have in drives. And when, when your offense isn't working and you're finally getting something and you have a turnover, it's just such a killer. Um, and that's like pretty much the definition of what happened um, in the Ohio State game. So USC just needs um, to clean that up. And the issues with some of those turnovers were, you know, were seemed like they were easily fixable. For Sam Darnold, you know, sometimes taking two hands off the ball when he's in the pocket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he's going to throw the ball, that makes sense. There were, you know, there was at least one of the, the fumbles in the Ohio State game. He's going to throw the ball when he gets stripped. There's another one where he's in the pocket, he's just looking around, and he gets stripped because he's not taking care of the ball. Uh, those ones should have been coached up better. Now, I don't know yeah. if Tyson Helm or Brian Ellis, one of those two guys. If if that's your previous offense, I mean your previous quarterbacks coach and your current quarterbacks coach, someone needs to be able to tell tell a quarterback to hey, keep your hands on two hands on the ball. What are you doing? Keep two hands on the ball, and then like slap them every time that they don't <laughs> practice or something on the hands, not in the face, but you know, whatever it takes to you know they should have been going through some of the Dylan McCullough ball safety drills or something because uh, why do they never you know, do that i don't understand i mean the the running I, the tight ends participated in the running back drills why why is that not a quarterback thing yeah i know it's it's different in, in regard like you're not just tucking the ball and running a lot as a quarterback but you can make a couple alterations to those drills and you know use them bring out the punch ball stick or, you know or the punching uh the boxing glove stick to, to punch the ball out if they don't have two hands i mean that's that could be the slap that I'm talking about. Like, just keep that ready, and then anytime you see them in a drill or anything, take that second hand off the ball, slap at it. You know, uh, there were some things that, that I felt just weren't done in that regard. There were correctable mistakes that led to some more turnovers than USC needed to have. Yeah, agreed. That's all I got for Change It. I, this has Same been here. a marathon of a podcast. So if you are still sticking out at this point, thank you very much. But uh, that's pretty much all we got for at least this episode, right? Definitely. That's all I got. I'm out. Of, I'm out of voice over here. Out of juice. I still got the juice. <laughs> juice. No breaking news during this marathon podcast, which is a feat in itself. I think it's a miracle. Oh my gosh! Are you Mario over there? The Mario Brothers, Luigi? That's yeah, what, obviously. That's what you sound like. Alrighty. Um, any final thoughts? I don't know if you can have any more final thoughts before we wrap this podcast up. No, I mean I think we covered pretty much the season as a whole. And now we'll start looking toward the offseason. I mean, we've started started touching on that with the changes and everything. But once the roster is kind of finalized, you know, in the next two to three weeks when you get to sign a day, then we'll see where USC can, can start taking some next steps. And, you know, even before that happens, you know, finalizing the roster with the coaching staff, you can take some extra steps there. We'll see if they do that or if uh, if the members of the P are going to be ready to, to break out the pitchforks and the uh, the torches. Oh, man. Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. It's always, like we started this podcast, it's always interesting around USC. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and for listening to our podcast this whole season. Um, it was something new, a brainchild of mine, if you will, and I and I dragged Shockin' along with me. <laughs> 
Um, oh, that's true. I, I get dragged by my hair. It's true. The hair that no one sees. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. We'll be back with more podcasts. Um, we're not sure of the whole schedule, but we'll be back. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. And big ups to Keely for editing these podcasts, because... I'm just the talker around here. Yeah, he, you're the you're the beauty, and I'm the brawn, and all of this. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Well, Sounds about right. But I'm also the beauty. No, I shouldn't compliment you. That's horrible. Also, <laughs> stock neutral is a thing, and that's where we're gonna end that's this podcast. Not. It is. No, it's not. It is. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. <laughs>